Hi there, Duncan Green here with uh, the weekly roundup of blogs and conversations on From Poverty to Power. Um, it's, it's a bit late today because I've been taking, uh, spending quite a lot of time with Yuan Yuan Ang, but I'll, I'll get to her later. Okay, so first up on Monday, we had the usual links I liked. I think the star this week was Branko Milanovic. He's often the star. I think he writes beautifully and, and is just kind of the most erudite person out there writing on development and politics, as far as I'm concerned. He did a great review of 15 Gurus, a book bringing together 15 Gurus, writing on the future of social democracy, and added on his own thoughts. But there's also a potential rival to his elephant graph about inequality, which is someone's, uh, the, the Economist put together a, a, a really interesting graph of the share of world GDP um, being uh, produced by the advanced economies, as the Economist called them, and the emerging economies. And there's a, a total crossover in 2008, not you know, interestingly, given the financial crisis, where the advanced economies suddenly fall and the emerging economies become bigger. And when you look at the whole thing, it looks remarkably like a squid. So I'm waiting for somebody with more tech skills than me to produce the squid graph of geopolitical change. Um, so over to whoever wants to do that. Tuesday, Paul Clist, who is this uh, an academic at the University of East Anglia, uh, came and talked about payment by results. Now, payment by results is... A very fashionable, especially in the big aid agencies like DFID and USAID uh, and the World Bank. Um, Paul reviewed 20 DFID projects with, you know, he got access thanks to DFID who wanted to see uh, and basically looked at a decade of attempts to do PBR, payment by results, as it's called. His headline conclusion is that they still haven't done one properly, that there isn't a single full PBR project by his criteria. Instead, people are taking bits of it and sort of, you know, doing bits of PBR and other things or halfway house PBR. And so we don't really know whether full on PBR uh, would work because no, no one's done it, at least not in DFID. He finds some successes in when small bits of PBR are attached to bigger projects, more conventional projects. Um, but he also finds plenty of failures. So he basically says there's ammunition here for skeptics and enthusiasts. Um, two things there, really. One is it's a classic academic paper. The whole point of academic papers is to conclude that you need more research. And Paul does that. So that's good. He'll keep his job. Um, but the second more serious point is, you know, if they've been trying to do PBR for a decade and they still haven't managed to do a full one, there's probably a reason for that. And I'd be really interested in, in terms of the institutions and the norms and the incentives within the aid business, what is stopping a full-on PBR process going on? Wednesday, I reviewed a book. Uh, somebody sent me a book called Learning Service, The Essential Guide for Volunteering Abroad, to Volunteering Abroad. Um, and this was a real revelation to me. I, you know, I last really spent time with volunteers several decades ago in Central America. And uh, since then, it's become a very big business. So about 10 million people travel essentially from north to south. It's about a $2 billion a year in industry. And the book is really, I found the book quite shocking. I mean, it's shocking because it is so much of volunteering is completely unregulated, ineffective, all sorts of horror stories, scams, chances. Um, at the volunteerism end of volunteering, you've got travel agents sticking a couple of hours in an orphanage to add a bit of sort of social uh, zest to a, to a holiday package. And there's all sorts of horrendous scams where poor families are being paid to put their kids into these orphanages if they're young and cute. 
and the kids basically work chatting to tourists instead of going to school. I mean, that is just grim. So a lot of um, sort of very worrying stuff about that. Some good examples too, but I was more struck by the bad stuff. Um, however, I'm guessing that a lot of young people who are passionate about doing something in the world and seeing something of the world are going to do this anyway. And the book is a great guide for how to prepare for volunteering, the mistakes, the things you're going to come across, all the way down to, you know, uh, what do you do about begging? What do you do if you find that if you think that someone's corrupt in the organization you're placed in, all this kind of stuff. So whatever my qualms about volunteering, I would definitely recommend this to a would-be volunteer. Although personally, I think I would be more in favor of either a ban or a bloody great tax, where any volunteer has to pay $1,000 to go into some real social services just as a kind of uh, compensation for the, for any possible harm they're going to do. Um, lots of great links and comments on this. There's obviously a lot of people who know much more about volunteering than I do, and they all piled in with comments and examples and links. So if you're interested in the subject, skip the, skip the post and just go straight to the comments. On Thursday, uh, a good friend, Aidan Ayakuzi, who is the executive director of Twaweza, this fantastic NGO in, in Tanzania, wrote a kind of, it's actually an op-ed, um, uh, and the question he was asking was, what is civil society for? And this came as a reflection after a week, a civil society week in the capital of Tanzania, Dodoma. Um, and uh, he, it was a really interesting, thoughtful piece. He, he basically said that there's a polarized debate. Some people say, especially governments, like to say civil society are just there to do service delivery, you know, make the water flow, build the schools, deliver healthcare, and shut up. Uh, don't question us, don't do advocacy, don't talk about human rights, just get out there and help poor people. And others, especially in the, you know, uh, the, probably at the more left-wing end of the end of the, of the civil society movement, say, no, our job is to speak truth to power, hold governments to account, to pursue social justice. And Aidan says that that's just a false dichotomy, that the, the service delivery and social justice are inseparable, because social justice in some ways provides the feedback loops you need to make social de service delivery work okay. So he thinks governments need CSOs uh, and they need CSOs doing advocacy, not just delivering services. And he makes a powerful case for that. All the more impressive because he personally is getting all sorts of trouble from the Tanzanian government at the moment um, for speaking out, for questioning the actual level of popularity of the president and Tanzania is in this quite bad place at the moment where they're passing a law as Aidan wrote about recently which is among other things making it illegal to question government statistics so there is a real crackdown going on in Tanzania which historically has been liberal so all the more impressive that Aidan is out there thinking in these big picture terms on um, Friday, I just put a, a summary of a new paper that Oxfam's got out called, uh, about using evidence to influence policy. Uh, the main author was Ruth Main, a colleague at Oxfam, uh, and Irene Hout, uh, Martin Walsh, and I chipped in, along with Paul Carney from the University of Strathclyde. And it's a kind of academic version of what I often write about on the blog, which is the tricks of the trade in terms of how do you design evidence to influence policy. And this is becoming terribly uh, important within certainly British universities and British academia, not least because they're being paid to do it. So 25% of their 
assessment for government funding under the Research Excellence Framework is going to be about proof of impact. So they're all running around saying, oh my God, oh my God, how do we prove impact? Well, this is our attempt to give some examples from our own experience as Oxfam. And then I strayed over into the weekend this morning, Saturday, um, because uh, I managed to persuade Yuen Yuen Ang uh, from the University of Michigan to come and give a lecture at uh, LSE last night. Um, she has got this absolutely brilliant book called How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, which I reviewed and raved about last year. And uh, Yuen Yuen's been on a kind of globe world tour promoting the book since then. Finally got her to the LSE and I managed to persuade her to come and do a podcast as well. So I just talked to her about some of the uh, issues she raises in the book uh, and its implications not just for China, but for uh, other developing countries, other development processes and aid agencies. And I think she is just one of the most interesting people out there at the moment on, 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 these, whole, on, on these questions. So I urge you to um, both come and listen to the podcast, but also I'm hoping to do more of this kind of podcast stuff and I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm making it up. So any tips or suggestions for how to improve the podcast I've done so far will be incredibly helpful. So that's it for me. Have a good weekend and talk to you next week.